the more you engage with reality as it is, the less anxious people tend to be, the less depressed they tend to be, the less angry, and they become more accepting of themselves, more accepting of their circumstances. And this is a big, big part of how psychotherapy works, almost regardless of the, the school of thought or the modality. You have found the Thinking Mind podcast. If you're here for the first time, welcome. If you're checking out our content again, welcome back. Today, what we're going to be talking about is a very psychological set of concepts. Some of our content you'll notice is more biological, like we just released a couple of episodes about cannabis, very, very into the biological. But today's piece of content is going to be more psychological. And the idea I'm going to be talking about is something called reality versus fantasy. Recently, I've been thinking about one of the things I've been thinking about is what is the role of fantasy in perpetuating our sort of unhelpful mental processes, what you call maybe our neurotic processes. And these neurotic processes can make us more angry, more depressed, more anxious, more withdrawn. What role is fantasy playing in all of that? What role is fantasy playing in keeping you stuck where you don't want to be? maybe in a particular area of your life or a particular area of your client's life if you're a mental health professional. And I think it's very interesting because fantasy is a a really uniquely human thing. Our brains have this ability to imagine, to not just focus on what is, but what could be or what could have been in the past. And obviously that's very useful because that's what makes us future-focused and imaginative creatures, and it allows us to bring into actuality things which aren't currently real. And that's what makes us such an innovative species. But in modern society, now that we've become a bit more insulated from the harshness of reality, the harshness of nature, it's easier and easier for us to retreat in a fantasy world. And while fantasy is useful in a small dose when it's appropriate, I think that too much fantasy can cause the perpetuation of these unhelpful mental processes, as I said. When we were still evolving, you know, humans had to adapt to this really harsh natural landscape. And as a result, we had to be very, very reality oriented. And I think over time, people are becoming less and less reality oriented. So that's what we're going to be talking about, what role fantasy might be playing. And we're going to look at it through different schools of psychological thought like cognitive behavioral therapy or Jungian psychology or even just general psychoanalytic theory and see if we can get at this concept from a a number of different angles. I'll make the case that good psychotherapy among other things should be an exercise in reality orientation and then I'll give a list of some potential activities one could do to become more reality oriented And then we'll conclude with some take-home messages. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out is, by fantasy, I mean often an unconscious fantasy. And I, I don't mean a fantasy that's particularly bizarre. Often the fantasy in question has a grain of truth and can appear quite convincing. And then the second point I want to make is that the fantasy can be both the cause and the effect of neurosis. So the neurosis we're talking about is anxiety. I'll make the case that fantasy 
can make anxiety worse. And that worsened anxiety can then produce more fantasy in a kind of self-reinforcing spiral. So what do I mean by kind of non-bizarre fantasy? If you take, for example, someone that's socially anxious, they might have an unconscious or semi-conscious or even conscious belief that people don't like them or that people don't respect them. This isn't necessarily a bizarre fantasy. It may have grains of truth in that they may have encountered people who don't particularly like them or, or value them. But where it becomes fantasy is when it becomes generalized to everyone and it becomes a pervasive belief that influences all of that individual's interactions. And then what do I mean by that can be both the cause and, and the effect? So if you hold the belief that people don't like you, people don't value you, that's going to make you more anxious, obviously. And then once you are more anxious, that's going to influence your behavior. That's going to make you less likely to go out, less likely to socialize. And then what happens when you don't do that? Well, then your social skills decline. You stop spending time with people. You spend more time alone, more time in the house. And that allows more time for rumination, more time for the fantasy to develop and to grip and to take hold. So you can see how this kind of spiral starts to develop. This is something you look at explicitly in cognitive behavior therapy, where you look at what's called the person's core beliefs, you see how it's influencing their thoughts and their emotions, and then you see how those are influencing their behavior, and how there's a kind of bi-directional relationship between thoughts, emotions, and behavior. And what you do in CBT is you start to adjust the person's behavior so that it starts to then, by reverse engineering, influence the person's thoughts and emotions, because it's quite difficult to consciously alter thoughts and emotions, definitely emotions. Thoughts, of course, can be challenged, which is something else you do in CBT. But the easiest thing to change is at the level of behavior. And when you do that, it starts to change your psychology. So again, going back to the socially anxious individual, if he starts to interact with people slowly and gradually and starts to get good social responses, that's going to be a very powerful way of challenging those unhelpful thoughts and emotions and then ultimately those negative core beliefs and, and those fantasies ultimately. So it's important to be aware that these fantasies can resemble reality, they can be quite convincing, they're not going to be like these bizarre psychotic fantasies like the CIA implanted a chip in my brain or something like someone with schizophrenia might experience but they can be quite convincing. And they could have grains of truth as well. The next point I want to make is that there can be positive and negative fantasies, and that some people can spend a lot of their lives oscillating between the two. So if you take someone who's narcissistic, for example, they can have a kind of positive fantasy about themselves, and that can take the form of, I'm uniquely special, I'm uniquely entitled, I deserve special treatment. The world is divided into winners and losers, and I'm a winner, and I should only associate primarily with winners. If you have watched the, the movie Little Miss Sunshine, the, the dad in Little Miss Sunshine is a lot like that. So the fantasy can be positive. But what tends to happen is, if people spend a lot of time in this kind of positive fantasy about themselves, when they then do encounter reality, and everyone eventually encounters reality at some point, 
unreality doesn't live up to their idealized version of themselves, then they collapse into self-loathing. So what will happen with the narcissist is they spend a lot of their time in this positive fantasy and then things happen to them which makes them collapse into self-loathing. And often what that results in is what's called narcissistic rage, realizing that they're not, they don't live up or reality doesn't, doesn't fit the idea that they had. Karen Horney writes about this excellently in her book, Neurosis and Human Growth, where she describes that people who have neurosis tend to have a basic anxiety that they're not good enough or that their needs aren't going to be met. And that as a result, they develop this idealized image of themselves, which they always try and move towards. But when they inevitably fail, because it is idealized and perfection is not ultimately achievable, they collapse into self-loathing. And what Karen Horn I proposes as the solution is reality orientation. Realizing that you are a flawed human being, that you have strengths and weaknesses, and that ultimately self-acceptance is as this flawed individual is the path to ameliorating your neurosis. Similarly, Carl Jung thought of neurosis as manifesting as a result of tension between the ego, which is the part of the psyche which is really reality-oriented. The ego deals with things on a day-to-day basis. It has to negotiate with reality and the unconscious mind. And as I said earlier, these kind of fantasies, positive and negative, are often held in the unconscious, or sometimes they're somewhere between unconsciousness and consciousness. But that tension between these unconscious fantasies and the ego, which actually has to go out and and put food on the table, that tension causes the, the neurosis, the anxiety, the anger, the withdrawal. And what you need to do is, you know, through a process like therapy, see if you can bring those fantasies into consciousness so that they can be questioned, made explicit and and actually dealt with. Hence, resolving the tension, resolving the conflict, again, orienting yourself more towards reality. In general psychoanalytic theory, they talk about defense mechanisms. Examples of defense mechanisms include denial, projection, humor, sublimation. And one of the things defense mechanisms do, particularly the less healthy ones, because defense mechanisms are generally divided into less healthy and more healthy or less mature and more mature. But one of the things that defense mechanisms do is they kind of filter reality to confirm the kind of beliefs we have about the world, or in this case, perhaps the fantasies that we have about the world. So let's say you have a fantasy that you're not lovable, and many people do, strange as it sounds, do have that fantasy. And you encounter someone that actually shows interest in you. A defense mechanism like denial might come into play, because there's something about actually perceiving yourself uh, as lovable that's, that's threatening to your version of reality, to your fantasy. So denial comes into play to protect that narrative about yourself and to keep yourself in some strange sense psychologically safe. Again, in CBT theory, these are referred to as core beliefs. And rather than defect, defense mechanisms, they talk about cognitive distortions, which again, they're a distortion of or a filter of reality. 
to conform to some sort of narrative that, that we have about the world. In transactional analysis, another kind of psychotherapy, they talk about having a life script, which essentially is a predetermined narrative about how our life is going to go that we develop at a very early age in response to certain early life experiences. So if you have a life script that says that you need to be extremely successful or you are destined to fail, again, you will tend to filter reality in order to fit that life script and that will affect your cognitions, your thoughts, your emotions, your behavior and so on. There are some things you can do to try and examine what kind of fantasies you might hold about the world. So for example, if you send an email or a text and you don't immediately get a reply, there's that vacuum. One thing you can do is examine where does your mind go? What does your mind fill that vacuum with? If you haven't gotten a reply, what kind of reply does your mind anticipate that you're going to get? That would be very informative as to what kind of beliefs you might hold about other people and to some degree the world. If you start a new project and there's that tension building as you're taking those beginning steps through that project, what kind of automatic thoughts tend to come into your mind? What kind of emotions do you tend to feel? This might be informative about fantasies which you hold about success or about progression through life and so on and so forth. Do you notice that there tends to be some sort of contrast between the responses you get from reality and your anticipated responses? Is there a contrast between how you think someone's going to reply to your email and your text or how you think something's going to go when you start a new project or a new activity and the actual response you get from the world? Because that again would be very informative, the contrast between what you think, your beliefs about reality and then reality itself. So, to reiterate, the process tends to go as follows. You might have some kind of basic anxiety or some kind of basic unmet need often early in your life. And as a result, to compensate or as a reaction to those unmet needs, you generate positive or negative fantasies or both. The more you get lost in those fantasies, the more those fantasies actually have you in their grip. And because they have grains of truth, they can be particularly convincing. But the more you get lost in the fantasies, the more actually you get diverted from reality, and the less you will tend to do things which will keep you reality-oriented. That will cause whatever original need that was unmet to continue being unmet. That causes more neurosis, more fantasies, etc., etc. So what is the alternative? If there's some kind of air in your life or your client's life where you're experiencing a significant amount of mental suffering, the chances are that fantasies are playing some kind of role in the maintenance of that mental suffering. So your task is to bring these fantasies more and more into your awareness, to critique them, to question them, not just intellectually, but also by taking action, by doing something different in the world, because when you act in the world, you're negotiating with or colliding with reality and then taking very careful note of what you learn from those collisions with reality and contrasting that to your original fantasies, becoming more and more reality-oriented bit by bit over time. 
So if you have a fear of standing up to your boss because you have some idea that it's unacceptable to stand up to authority, by in some small but significant way starting to create that boundary or being more assertive or stand up to that boss, you start to slowly collide with reality and then you start to get results. So maybe the boss actually listens to you. Maybe the boss has his own issues and responds to you with narcissistic rage, but something's going to happen. You're going to learn something from that interaction, from that encounter. And by doing that over and over and taking careful notes of what's going on, you can then compare and contrast that with the ideas that he originally held. And then strangely, what happens is, or what people tend to report, is the more you engage with reality as it is, the less anxious people tend to be, the less depressed they tend to be, the less angry, and they become more accepting of themselves, more accepting of their circumstances. And this is a big, big part of how psychotherapy works, almost regardless of the the school of thought or the modality. Taking another really concrete example, when people have a weight problem, they're overweight, they want to lose weight, often they'll have a negative fantasy that because they have a weight problem, they don't just have a weight problem, but it encompasses their whole being, they're not lovable, they don't have value as a result of that weight problem. So they start off with a negative fantasy. Typically then, then when they want to deal with the problem, they'll have some sort of positive fantasy, which is like, I'm just going to smash it out for two or three months. And after two or three months of dieting, I want to go from having a serious weight problem to having a six pack. And what you'll find is that actually a lot of consumer marketing takes advantage of that positive fantasy by telling them just that, you know, follow my particular special diet and you're going to have a six pack in six weeks or something like that have a 90 day challenge and you're totally going to transform your body in that short amount of time people will buy into that positive fantasy then they'll try it then they'll fail and then when they fail they collapse from the positive back into the negative so that's the wrong way to lose weight that's the way to lose weight where you're kind of you're not really being reality oriented what's the right way to lose weight well developing healthy habits learning about food, engaging with the reality of what food is, the reality of what distinguishes unhealthy food from healthy food, practices like just weighing yourself every so often, that orients you back to reality, that's feedback from the world, starting to learn how much calories are in things, because that is, again, feedback from reality, that is a guide ultimately to how much you should be eating, getting into a regular exercise routine so you actually spend more energy, your metabolism increases, etc., etc. That will That's a more reality-oriented way of losing weight that will take a lot longer, but ultimately will be much more effective, not just at losing the weight, but keeping the weight off. So you'll find that in any given endeavor, there'll be a correct way to go about it and a less correct way. And one way you can gauge that from the outset is to think how reality-oriented is this approach versus how much actually is this approach taking advantage of my positive or negative fantasies. There are a number of activities besides psychotherapy which ground you in reality. Meditation grounds you in reality because it literally is the practice of observation of reality and distinguishing the reality in front of you from your actual mental processes, your thoughts and your emotions. 
So it is literally practice at approaching and observing and watching reality go by and crucially in a non-judgmental way so that you don't become resistant to reality but quite the opposite, you become non-resistant and that allows you to move through the world with a bit more ease and a bit more grace. Exercise is a good way of grounding yourself in reality because as everyone knows, regardless about how much weight you think you might lift or how far you think you can run, when you actually engage in the activity, you start to see your limitations. And most people think of seeing their limitations as a bad thing. But again, encountering your limitations, knowing where they are, paradoxically has quite a calming effect on, on us psychologically. It tends to improve our mood, tends to actually make us less anxious. Because we know where we are, we have some context for what we can do and for what we can't do. Similarly, martial arts are a good way of grounding yourself in reality. Learning a musical instrument, because when you're playing a musical instrument, the instrument doesn't lie to you about how good you're doing. It tells you immediately, you're getting that immediate feedback about how you're doing. Public speaking, like recording a podcast and listening back to the recording of your voice or talking in front of the audience, seeing their feedback there and then, that's another really good way of grounding yourself in reality. These activities are grounding because it's difficult to deceive yourself, although some people do, but in general it's difficult to deceive yourself when you're doing them, particularly if you're doing it in a group or with a coach or with a teacher or with a therapist. Many people, when they do these kinds of activities, they're obviously going outside of their comfort zone and they feel quote-unquote triggered. And there's a reason for that, it's because you are literally pitting your idea of what the world is like against the actual world itself. And ultimately, the world is always right. Your beliefs are often wrong. And when there are those clashes, it can cause strong emotions like anger, sadness, anxiety. Or when you do better than you expected, excitement, anticipation, joy, bliss. And again, those, particularly the negative emotions, are a really good portal into what your fantasies are. So if you feel when you're doing one of these activities, unexpected anger, unexpected sadness, try not to shy away from it, but think, why am I feeling this emotion in this particular context? You might write about it, go deeper into it. What is the emotion signaling to you about this, this contrast between what you thought and what's actually happening? In general, the more you refuse either consciously or unconsciously to acknowledge how things are, how things actually are in a given moment, in the long term that creates more psychological suffering because it causes more reality avoidance. Whereas if you develop the practice of facing reality in small ways again and again and again, the better at it you become and gradually you cultivate a psyche that's more and more reality-oriented over time. That doesn't mean, of course, that your life is not going to be without pain. But pain isn't what you want to avoid. And we actually released a clip about this last year called Pain versus Suffering, which really is similar to the lot of concepts we're discussing today. Pain is useful feedback from the world. It's inevitable. It's useful and you want to take advantage of pain, you want to see what you can learn from pain, because pain is very informative, and you would not want to live a life without pain. The problem is, there's a lot of unhelpful and unnecessary mental suffering 
that tends to go along with pain and this is one of the key sort of observations of buddhism and why they make that distinction between pain and suffering which is a similar distinction to what's made in dialectical behavior therapy as well you can think of pain as the result of collision with reality and it's it's a learning experience it's a learning opportunity whereas suffering is just kind of the mental story you tell yourself it tends to make pain worse and it tends to cause behaviors which in the long term will give you more pain and, and more suffering so here are some take home messages i don't think it's about becoming 100% reality oriented as i mentioned in the beginning there is a place for imagination and for fantasy but what i want for you is to be very very clear when it is you're engaging with fantasy as a useful tool versus when you're slipping into it either consciously or unconsciously particularly when it comes to solving real problems in your life when it comes to solving real problems you want a little bit of fantasy to imagine the potential to imagine what could be but then you want to be very very grounded in reality and the actual activities you should do should be activities which ultimately ground you more in reality the nature of your day-to-day fantasies can be very informative about your individual psychology about your nature these fantasies can be deep rooted in basic anxieties that you may have from early life basic unmet needs and there are a number of activities which can help ground you in reality and pursuing these activities with that conscious intention of expanding your self awareness can be very grounding revitalizing calming and can help with those unhelpful neurotic processes so i hope you found that useful give it some thought we're open to feedback if you agree disagree and we'll see you next time you are listening to the thinking mind podcast thank you so much for listening to this episode if you enjoyed it please share it with a friend or give us a rating it really does help people to find us if you find the podcast valuable why not buy us a coffee to help keep us going there's a link in the show notes as ever we love to hear from you and love to hear what you think so drop us an email or get in touch on social media thank you so much